Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. This month, in honor of Black History Month in the United States, we're staying right here on American soil and focusing on the experience of Black Americans. And today we'll be talking about the Black queer experience. We'll spend most of our time in the realm of personal experience, both from the memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, by Saeed Jones, and from our guest today, the incredible Stacey Harkey. Welcome, Stacey. Howdy, howdy. So great to have you here. And I have to say really quick as a disclaimer, Stacy and I recorded this episode last month when I was getting over being really sick. So my voice was really low and we recorded the whole conversation. It was awesome. And then I went to edit it and something happened with the microphone and I lost like a quarter of the episode. So we're re-recording today. I think I actually sound a little sicker today. So... <laughs> So if you notice a little change in our voices, that's why. So I just wanted to give that disclaimer. Okay, for listeners who don't know who Stacy Harkey is, I'll read a little professional bio for you, Stacy, and then you can introduce yourself personally in a second. Born in Dallas, Texas, Stacy Harkey considers himself to be a Southerner to the core. After graduating with a degree in public relations from Brigham Young University, he was a writer and actor for the sketch comedy TV show Studio C. He is currently a personal trainer, a corporate DEI consultant, and owns a media company called JK Studios. Stacy is a firm believer in the power of an embarrassing moment, a burnt meal, and an extremely difficult challenge. That's awesome, Stacy. So I'd love it if you could just introduce us to you a little bit more, kind of where you're from and some of the things that make you you. Of course. I So I am from Dallas, Texas. I actually grew up from a place not too far from where Saeed grew up, which I absolutely loved. And we'll jump into that a little bit later. But I am just like a big old extroverted nerd. I just want to like get in people's brains and see their feelings and be challenged in the process. I, I don't know. That's just like me in a nutshell. I just love people and I love the rawness that comes from unfiltered experiences, which we'll see a lot of in this book and we'll talk a lot about. And so I think this was like a good, this felt like a very good choice for me to be a part of with this podcast. I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's been actually a really neat experience for me because we each read the book. Stacy and I read this book, How We Fight for Our Lives. And then we just texted each other what we liked as we were reading it. And I was learning so much through the book. But then being able to converse with you was actually kind of like a a really neat, profound experience for me. And so I'm really grateful for that and experience that we had even in preparing for the podcast too. It's actually quite a serious book, but I thought really, really heartwarming sometimes too, and life-affirming and beautiful, even though hard to read sometimes. But let's start by learning a little bit about the author, Saeed Jones. Stacey, could you introduce Saeed for us? I'd love to. Saeed Jones was born in 1985 in Memphis, Tennessee. He was raised as the only child of a single mother in Louisville, Texas, and attended college at Western Kentucky University then earned an MFA in creative writing at Rutgers University, Newark. His debut poetry collection, Prelude to Bruise, was named a 2014 finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. His second book, a memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, won the Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction in 2019, as well as ecstatic reviews from every publication imaginable. And I'm just going to say, I 
absolutely love this book. I use the colloquial like slang term. I was shooketh. I think I might have texted you that a couple of times. <laughs> I was just shooketh by not only how brilliant Saeed is, but how much I could relate. I was like, he's writing experiences that I've, that I've had directly. We will warn everyone that listeners right now that there are very explicit sexual scenes and some of it's kind of hard to read. It isn't gratuitous sexuality for the sake of sensationalism. It's important in understanding his experience in particular and broader social patterns in general. He tells the truth in all its detail. But if you're not used to that, as some of us aren't, it can it can be feel kind of raunchy. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's kind of my take on the book. Was, it was just beautiful and relevant and ugly, but like in the sense of like it's real. So we're going to take turns sharing important passages from the book. And Stacy, I'd love it if you could share your thoughts and experiences as it brings up different issues. So the first topic that we wanted to talk about that's a major theme in the book is racism. And there's a passage that we wanted to highlight that talks about the murder of a black man that really impacted Saeed. And I think he saw it on the news, right? So maybe, Stacy, if you could read that passage and then just talk about it. Yeah. Let's see. After a long day of work, James Byrd Jr., a black man, accepted a ride home from three white men, three white supremacists, he realized a moment too late. They beat him, chained him to the back of their truck, and dragged him for more than a mile down a desolate country road. Jasper, where Byrd lived and died, is just a four-hour drive from the living room where my mother and I sat that evening. I was a black boy in America, curled fetal in his twin bed, ears ringing with the rattle of chains. Just as some cultures have a hundred words for snow, there should be a hundred words in our language for all the ways a black boy can lie awake at night. Man, just like, as he said, just as there, what do you say? There should be a hundred words in our language for all the ways a black boy can lie awake at night. I remember begging, begging, praying to God, begging him to like, fix me for being gay to fix my life because of poverty and, and or loneliness or just like being treated differently because of my skin. Like truly I could relate to that. And it like, it like brought those feels back stung. Yeah. I, it was devastating to read that when I read it too. And one thing that really struck me was that he was, you know, that, that image of him being curled fetal in his bed lying awake. And when it says ears ringing with the rattle of chains, mm. And how just the legacy, yeah, so poetic, but also like that concept of intergenerational trauma and the legacy of slavery still for this kid, it's still there that that's what's ringing in his head is like his ancestors and what happened that that doesn't go away just because it's not happening anymore. And on this topic too, I I just like, once I started studying history and I started like drawing timelines, it really struck me how recent it was. There's no way for the practice of enslavement to have worked itself out and gone away, especially because it was followed by Jim Crow and segregation and ongoing racism, of course, but just the connection to slavery, I'm like, it's still there. Oh, for sure. I actually spoke shortly after George Floyd was murdered. And I you, I feel like we saw this like different America. And it was actually in some ways very heartening to see everyone rally behind that, but everyone to see that and be so disgusted and to feel the weight of knowing that happened in our backyard, you know, in our country. 
And I remember talking to some people, I spoke at a thing and I just wanted people to understand that while people were like rallying for the first time and awake to this thing, especially a lot of white people, I wanted them to know that like, while this is a new battle for them, for some of us, this was like a family heirloom we'd inherited. This has been a constant battle that not only we fought, but our parents have fought and our grandparents have fought. And it's like, do you remember the exhaustion of being like, can we ever do anything? The frustration with things not being able to change. That's like generationally been inherited. <laughs> and it's so, it's so oppressive and frustrating and oppressive in the sense of like emotionally, like creatively. It's like this cloud that the smog that like hangs over like all the time. And Saeed kind of talked a little bit about this and uh, the aspect of like belonging and how tough it was being black and gay and a nerd. Mm. And I could relate to that so much. There's such, when you think about like, okay, what do white people like? You probably might have a hard time because you're like, oh, well, like every, there's so many different types of white people. I mean, from like sports to trivia, to it's just like, there's just such a range. And I don't feel like black people are often afforded that even within our own community sometimes. And so when Saeed talks about just because he was gay, black, and a nerd, he like literally had nowhere to belong. Because the only options are, you know, if, if you don't look like a stereotype to people, they question your very blackness, which is so frustrating. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you don't have gold teeth and baggy pants and love hip hop? You must not be black. And it's so frustrating when your very identity that you're fighting to have pride in is even like stripped away from you if you don't satisfy the very demands of whatever community or groups you're trying to associate with. And so I, that's like, I totally related to that. I mean, over time, I think my, what it, what it means identity for me has been shaped by those experiences. Cause I felt like I was never quite welcome, but I embraced these identities. And so my definition now is that like, what does it mean to be black? It's whatever I do is a black thing because I am black and I define the identity and not the other way around. What is a gay thing? What's whatever I'm doing? If it's if I'm arm wrestling someone, it's a gay thing because I am gay. You know what I mean? It's like I define my identity and not, the box doesn't define me. Okay, so the second topic that we wanted to talk about is homophobia. And obviously racism and homophobia are woven through the whole book. But there are a couple of quotes that we wanted to share. And then I wanted to hear your thoughts on these. Stacey, can you read that second quote that we identified? You never really forget your first Where and when and who you were, 16 years old at the football game, 26 outside the bar, 12 on the playground, or who they were, all the boys with mouths shaped like knife wounds, the men in the scuffed boots, the ones who look like your father or brother. You never forget when the word was first hurled at you, or whether a fist or a baseball bat came swinging right behind it, whether it was whispered, spat, or graffitied. You never forget your first faggot, because the memory in its way makes you. It becomes a spine for the body of anxieties and insecurities that will follow, something to hang all that meat on. Before you were just scrawny, now you're scrawny because you're a faggot. Before you were just bookish, now you're bookish because you're a faggot. Soon, bullies won't even have to say the word, nor will friends, as they start to sit at different lunch tables without explanation. There will already be a voice in your head whispering, faggot, for them. Woo! very intense. And honestly, when I immediately, every time I read a passage, I would like dive into my own experiences. And I I don't ever remember being called a faggot. 
That's an interesting word too, because in the gay community, I don't know how common it is. That's like a word that's being like reclaimed, like the term queer, which was like had negative connotation. And now we're like, we're reclaiming it. We could call it the F slur if you want. I'm, I'm unsure how to refer to it right now, actually. <laughs> but anyways, that word is getting reclaimed. I think about times though, where immediately was taken back to where people called me veiled names, right? Like I was called things like Sugarfoot or Sugar Tank or Philly Boy. So I really resonate with that because those things stick. And it's true. It's like your whole identity now. It's like, oh, of course you like that musical. You're you're a little, you've got a little sugar in your tank or something. You can't just like exist. There's always some qualifier about it. And he talks about in the beginning, I don't know if you remember this. He talks about, um, of course you remember. You're, you have a great memory. <laughs> Listening, like watching his mom like celebrate Prince. Yeah. Like he's like singing in this like high pitch voice, wearing like makeup, all these like gaudy colors and sparkles. And she is just like swooning. And I was like, yeah, my mom loved Prince and Michael Jackson. These very almost what we would what you would call feminine men who were just like icons. And it's really interesting and unfair. I remember being scolded as a child for um I would wear like my sister's shirt, like a skirt or something, or like put it on my head and like dance. And I remember being chewed out for that. And like almost in like the same space that like our, you know, Lord and Savior Prince is like dancing around gloriously. And I'm like, what? It feels like an interesting catch 22, but it's like, it all comes down to the sexuality, right? Like how it's presented. Prince was seen as a, like women wanted him. He was seen as like a very sexual being, very straight. And while like while I, my actions were contextualized in like a very queer sense or a very like not masculine sense. Yeah. One of the lines from that passage you read that was so really interesting to me and really heartbreaking is the last one where he talks about how once you're called those slurs, that then bullies don't even have to use the word anymore. It gets in your head. And that internalized homophobia starts to take root, which is the same as all of those awful labels and oppressive labels, I guess, like internalized racism, internalized misogyny. And we start to bully ourselves with those voices. Do you have anything that you wanted to say about that, Stacey? Or... Yeah, actually just like super spot on. I remember at a young age, knowing that certain behaviors were wrong and bad. And this is from like, I remember at a young age until like college when, um, well, adulthood when I came out. But um, so much mental energy goes into self-policing or self-analyzing. Like I would check my fingernails a certain way to ensure that people didn't think I was gay. I would look at my, if you stepped in something, I would, I consciously would be like, don't look at your shoe that way. Look at it a different way. Walk a certain way. Talk a certain way. So much energy goes into trying to like hide that as a kid or an adult, especially in spaces that have made, you know, make that clear or even imply that that's not welcome. And I think you see it with like different cultures too, like especially being black, some people will be like, There was a big debate going around online not too long ago with women wearing bonnets, which are generally worn to protect their hair at night, like out in public. And I think the only scorn came around because it was perceived as like a very black thing in like white spaces. So it's like policing ourselves that internalized 
homophobia or racism. Awful. Okay, another passage that I wanted to ask you about because I was so curious about this. It brought some things up that I'd never thought of before was the author talks about in high school that they were uh, watching the play The Laramie Project. And The Laramie Project is a series of monologues that are based on interviews that were done in the weeks following the murder of Matthew Shepard, who was a gay 21-year-old man in Laramie, Wyoming. Jones says that the hate crime murders of James Byrd and Matthew Shepard, so James Byrd being that black man who was killed, and then Matthew Shepard being white but gay, and he was killed for being gay, that these murders started to swirl and converge until two truths collided. And then he writes, quote, being black can get you killed. Being gay can get you killed. Being a black gay boy is a death wish. And one day, if you're lucky, your life and death will become some artist's new project. I don't know if you have a comment there. It's just so sad. The only way this attention can be brought to this is in like someone's death. Like, why did we have to wait till George Floyd was choked out to all of a sudden feel like this is an issue, right? And I've thought about that before where I'm like, I'm going to leave and become another statistic. And then we're going to be interviewing my friends who were like, maybe I guess he could have done that. I don't know. Like, I've I've been scared about that. And I don't know if I've grown up feeling like I could be killed for being gay, but I knew that I would lose relationships and I knew that I would lose connection and opportunities if I was perceived as gay. And sure enough, like that happened when I came out. So it's like, it kind of makes sense. It does feel kind of like, a, I don't know. Death wish might be a little strong, but it does feel like a like it cuts off a lot of opportunities for you. Another part of this same kind of scene in the book when they're watching the Laramie Project, I want to ask you about this because this is the part that I had never thought of before. So it's a really cool scene because I thought this is great. The high school is having them watch the Laramie Project. That's awesome. Yay. Right? They're doing some actual like anti-homophobia work. But then it was so interesting to read about the girls and boys different reactions as they watched this play. So he talks about how the boys are all just basically like masculinity signaling to each other, which isn't surprising, I guess. But, But then... It was so interesting because he says, within just a few minutes, some of the girls in my row were sobbing. A few held one another's hands. The monologues were heart shattering. I envied the girls who felt comfortable enough to cry. How easily they breathed. All the boys near me looked indifferent. I would think later that maybe some of them were only pretending to be indifferent. Maybe some could only sit comfortably, whisper ironically, laugh audibly with total effort. For me, it took all I had to sit still and silent. I mean, obviously, because what, what you just described, Stacey, right? He's not out yet. And so he's just really monitoring every little micro movement is what I'm gathering. And then it was so, I mean, as a straight person and as a girl, right? As a white girl, I'm I'm the girl sobbing basically in this scene. And And you and I just talked about like empathy And it was really interesting for me, too, to read the next part because he says, I think at first he's kind of touched that the girls are crying because he's like, oh, they care. But he can't show that he cares because then maybe he'll out himself. But then he writes, quote, 
The girl sitting right in front of me let her head drop to her chest as if felled. She shook her head back and forth, crying softly. It repulsed me then, her freedom. I tried to ignore a second girl now sobbing right next to me. I tuned out the words he spoke for fear that if I let myself pay attention, I would start crying too. I would start sobbing and not be able to stop. So I just, I, I mean, I sat with that and I thought, again, I, I, just, I actually, I really thought about how many times I have like wept about the struggles of people that I care about that aren't my own. And it hit me in a different way as a privilege that I just can cry about it openly. And also that I can cry, but then I have the privilege of kind of like walking away and it's not my lived reality. I don't know, Stacy. I just kind of, is it self-indulgent almost to cry about it? I don't, I don't feel like these girls were being performative or anything. I feel like it was genuine. I don't know. Help me process this part. <laughs> I don't know if I have the right answer, but I have my opinion. And it's that those girls weren't a problem. Like they weren't feeding into some terrible system by crying and feeling right. They were just as much victims to homophobia as he was in the sense of how they interact with it or the place it has in their community, right? Just like the straight boys who were maybe concerned to show emotion because people would think they were gay or something like, we're all victims of this system and maybe it interacts and infects us differently, you know, like... Saeed experienced it in like way and like such a pain and was just, you know, and maybe the girls experienced it in like hearing these horrible stories and, you know, they didn't experience the same pain that Saeed did. But, you know, I think everyone's like victims in this. I don't see a lot of value that comes from being like, you can't feel because I have a right to feel more, right? Like, I just don't see what benefit comes from that. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I guess my thought is to just make sure as I'm examining my own reactions is to, to try to make sure that I wouldn't then center my myself and my own emotional response above someone whose life really was impacted more than mine. You know what I mean? Just to make sure that I'm not taking away the centrality and the real acute issue that it is for people that it does affect. It was a really good exercise for me to just make sure like, you know, where's that coming from and how to be supportive and then not self-indulgent in our own emotional reactions, I guess. Anyway, such an interesting scene for me. And to be aware also, to be aware of how that could impact somebody else. I don't know. That's a, that's a great takeaway, right? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Just like pat your lapels or something. I think it's a great takeaway of like, you don't like to feel your feels, but like, where are you... Where's the focus of that or like like centralizing around? I think that's a really great way to to look at that. Yeah, love it. A couple more sections where Saeed talks about living within a homophobic world. Uh, Saeed had planned to come out in college, but then on his first day of school decided not to. He says, it shouldn't have been that easy to unbecome myself. The lies and omissions started to roll off my tongue and I began introducing a person who I wasn't exactly while smiling. And then later he's talking to his mom and he slips in a reference to a guy he dated. Then he sees that she doesn't want him to go there. And he says, she was staring at me wide-eyed, almost pleadingly, as if I'd led someone afraid of heights to the edge of a rusting bridge. And then I did exactly what I thought all people who love each other do. I changed the subject. 
I changed myself. I erased everything I had just said. I erased myself so I could be her son again. Uh, Heartbreaking. Isn't that the saddest? And it's so true. Like the way I worked to become, and I mainly in reference, I don't think about that with my blackness. The difference between being black and queer for me is not only I can just hide being queer, I can just not present a certain way or something or not kiss a boy in public or whatever people used to tell. But also I have a family system, like my family's all black too. And so when it comes to like prepping you to handle the world, you get generational information. My mom and dad can help prep me and teach me about what it means to be black and how to navigate in a better way. That is not the case with being queer. I don't, I didn't have someone who could sit me down and say, Hey, this is how you can navigate this world. Or I didn't have someone sit me down like I did as a kid and say, the world will tell you that you're wrong or that you're bad for something you can't control. And you just got to say, you know what? You got to realize that we're great. Black is beautiful. There is black excellence, like those elements, like the beauty of Black History Month to show us that black people invented things too and like built this country up and did brave things. We just did not have for for queerness at all for the queer community. So for me, it was like navigating that by myself or trying to find ways to like hide or stifle this thing that I knew was wrong, right? I knew at the time that being gay is wrong and I had to do everything to change myself or erase it. And it does remind me of some of the relationship he had with his grandmother, who was a very religious figure in his life. His mom was, I believe, Buddhist and had a very interesting relationship with like religion and didn't really talk about sexuality in that context, but his grandma did. And she would say, hey, we don't act this way. She would drag him to church. And once at church, his grandmother almost in cahoots with the pastor, called this, like, prayed that her daughter would learn the ways of Christianity and have hard times to help her realize it. Like, she kind of cursed her. It wasn't like, I pray that good things happen. It was like, I pray that bad things happen. And it made me think about the role religion has played in my life as a queer person. And religion is often used in, like, a nefarious way. For, like, me in my life, like, when it comes to my identity, religion was the reason to change for intense punishment was barely being held at bay. If I entertained any thoughts at all, religion was used to control me and to cajole me or to like call curses down on me. And I was like, it kind of blew my mind. You know, even my mom, who is very religious talking about like, I, well, I hope you have experience that help you learn where to go. It's like, you're not wishing for the best. You're helping like I have a hard time. And like Saeed talks about this in the book, where it just kind of played a very oppressive, life-threatening, family-dividing role. It almost feels like we would talk about black magic or something. Huh, ironically. Yeah, that part was so awful. So, so awful. To hear his grandma curse her own daughter so that they could, yeah, repent. Oh, so bad. And I don't think their relationship really ever recovered after that. Thanks for sharing that part too, where we get inside his head when he's in that interaction with his mom, because his mom actually is so loving and supportive. And you can correct me if I'm not interpreting this correctly, but I, I just feel like maybe he could sense that she probably would think it was easier if he wasn't gay and he, and she didn't necessarily want that for him. And so 
where he says, I changed myself. I erased everything I just said. I erased myself so I could be her son again. It just, it broke my heart, but I'm so grateful that you shared it for people who are straight, who are listening. If we have people who we maybe think are like, they might be queer and they might be needing to come out to me just to be aware. And actually, honestly, even if we're not in a scenario where we think someone might be queer, but just to realize that people around us are all the time that we don't realize. And I've said on other episodes, like, you know, people, if, if listeners, if you are religious and you're teaching a Sunday school class to youth, somebody in your class is queer. And they're the ones that are sitting there going like, do I need to erase myself in order for this adult to love me? Do I need to erase myself for my grandma, for my aunt, for my friend's mom or dad to love me? And just to be thinking, to, to not have, it's just so hard because we do live, again, in this patriarchal, heteronormative society where we do assume that everybody we interact with is heterosexual. But to try to remember that that's not the case and that we can be accidentally stifling people all the time. And we want to be a safe person for people to be who they authentically are around us. So we don't make anyone feel like they have to erase themselves in order to be loved by us. I think you're spot on. And I think that that is an interesting thing that Saeed really explored is how loving his mom was. And even her friends, very supportive. Took him to his first like drag show and yeah. gay bar. And like, like they were lifelines for him. These people his mom loved and associated with. But I think one thing that I love about this experience is like, that's often how, at least in my experience, I knew coming out, my parents would love me still. They did a good job of expressing that. I didn't know if they would like me or want to be around me. And the thing is like, when it's like attached to this concern or this fear you have, you are hyper vigilant. Marking someone who is safe is not just, oh, they are nice to me. You have to actively mark yourself as a safe place for someone who is like, trying to figure out if this thing that is going to lead to their separation from society or from friendships or from life is something they could talk to you about. And so when it comes to making being marked an unsafe person, it takes no effort at all. You The slightest comment, the cringe at like a gay couple is enough to be like, I can never talk to them. But to be marked as a safe place, you have to do more. It takes more. And so I think about that with his mom. She I mean, I don't know if she was a safe place. He definitely didn't feel like it. But yeah, it's it's just not like equal parts. You can't do the same amount on either side and be like, we're good. You have to like really overshoot it to be safe. I was recently, I was just kind of bothered the whole, like the whole grandma thing really bothered me. His mom forcing him to be around his grandma who would like really put him through it. Tried so hard to change him and like abused him in the sense to like, to fight his identity. And I am very big on boundaries and I'm kind of like, a, can be pretty intense sometimes. Where I'm like, if we can't respect each other's boundaries, we will not be in each other's lives. Right. And so seeing that, I was like, oh man, grandma would not have gotten no visits from me. And until we, I knew I could be safe around her, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Really, really hard. I want to go back to the thing that you just said, Stacey, to see if you could remember some examples of people who did kind of go out of their way to make sure that you felt they were a safe place. Like what did, what does that look like? I think of friends, like the friends that I knew were safe places. All my friends are great. 
they're like just super loving and supportive people. But once again, you're in the height of the sphere and you have no idea. It's like cliff jumping, but you can't see the bottom. And you're like, I could bash on a bunch of rocks. It's like, you're really careful about that. And it's prob- a decision you probably take a long time to make. But um, the friends who expressed support for queer people may- put me at ease. And it didn't just take once. It took a couple of times. Like I had a friend who was like, she was ta- she'd always talk about a friend of hers who was gay, who was getting married. And she was so happy for him. And I was like, she's a safe place. My sisters who were always very like supportive to the queer community, I was like, oh, this is a safe place. My dad and mom, very, my dad is like so, been so great. Just introduced a guy I was dating to my dad and I was so impressed how warm my dad was. I was also like, dad, calm down. You don't have to go this hard. <laughs> but um, they never expressed support for the queer community or for any queer person I knew. They've expressed so much love for me and for other people and for you know everyone, but it wasn't enough for me to feel comfortable talking to them. And so I think you just have to actively, you have to actively like really talk about it. You can't just wait for it to be brought up like Saeed's mom or he's like guessing or reading her reactions to know if she's safe or not. Because that's sometimes all we're left to if it's not talked about. Okay, that's really helpful. Well, and I'm just remembering from the book when you said that too, (laughs) there were some signs that were not subtle. Like remember when he would like, cut out underwear models. <laughs> like, I think Mark Wahlberg, yeah, his mom, his mom would find those magazine clippings and she'd just like wrinkle, she'll just like bunch them up, but then put them on the kitchen counter for him to find. Like, so she was definitely communicating her disapproval. I had forgotten about that part. So the next part that we wanted to talk about is there's like a few episodes from Saeed's life where he's trying to learn about being gay because he's old enough that he's realizing he's gay. And he's like, okay, what do I do? And so he says that one of his first exposures to the word gay was when his mom said it because he was learning about a friend of hers who had been diagnosed with AIDS in the 1980s and then tragically had taken his own life. And he, so he was really curious. He's like, uh oh, I think that word. Somehow, I think that's, you know, me. And he needed to know what it meant. So he went by himself. He went to the public library to read books about it. Do you want to read that next passage? All the books I found about being gay were also about AIDS. Gay men dying of AIDS like it was a logical sequence of events, a mathematical formula, or a life cycle. Caterpillar, cocoon, butterfly, gay boy, gay man, AIDS. It was certain. Mom's friend got AIDS because he was gay. Because he was gay, he killed himself. When I stood up to put the books back on the shelf, I realized my hands were shaking. I felt like I had made the mistake of asking a fortune teller to look into my future, and now I was being punished for trying to look too far ahead. It is like so true and like gut wrenching and heart wrenching. The information, like knowledge is power, and I know it sounds so schoolhouse rock and cheesy, but like so much is left unsaid. And this kid that knows nothing is having to fill it in with his own assumptions, with his like interpretation of what is being unsaid. Like it's mom, his mom's refusal to talk about it, her disappointment, his grandmother's attempt to like change him or force him into another sense. Like he is fighting for his life to understand like what is happening because all he sees now is that being gay means he will die. When you have gaps in information, you are left to make assumptions. 
And when you have gaps in information about your very identity and humanity, you have to find out. Like you just, it's either finding out by doing, finding out by um, exploring, discovering someone teaching you. And if you don't have that access, that process can be so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we talk about like straight kids growing up have school dances and their parents, you know, joking about girls and asking them about boys, you know, they might be interested in and the example of their parents or aunts and uncles or something. And gay kids are left with what? Stories about AIDS. And as our sexuality, um, as we come into our sexuality, like every human being does, and, you know, sometimes it's stifled and it comes out in dangerous ways. And other times we fight for our lives to learn more information. And Mm -hmm. it comes from older men. Mm -hmm. It comes from dangerous chat rooms, as we see with Saeed. And it's like, it's such a discredit. That was the sense that I got to, even though I couldn't relate personally, but just picturing this poor kid with his hands shaking, terrified, and there's nobody there to comfort him because he can't talk to anybody about it. Broke my heart. And then Yeah, I'd love you to talk more about what you just alluded to were were these sexual encounters that he had for the very reason that you just said, like, there's no safe way to learn about it. There's no, like, steps that you can take holding hands and then, like, your first kiss can't happen in public, right? Like, out in the light. So where is it going to happen safely? And so let's talk about kind of that, that first sexual encounter again at the library. He's at the library. He's got around the firewalls on the internet because, you know, internet back in this day wasn't that widespread or fast. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's doing it at the public library. He's looking up. Um, I think he's going to like, is it gay chat rooms or mm-hmm. is it looking at porn or something? I don't remember, but something. He's like something that. like that. And an older man is like, hey, I'm an older man. He's like, someone's dad is like, hey, I'm like you. Meet me in the bathroom. And he's like scared and Ex, you know, excited and enthralled, but like nervous. Like he's like experiencing all these emotions at the same time, goes to the bathroom, has his first sexual encounter with this guy. And it's pretty like gross. Mm-hmm. It's pretty sad. It's like, he's like a teenager and it's so complex. And I say this and I, and this is going to sound so crazy, but at the same time that I was like screaming for sight, not to go in that bathroom, I was like cheering him on. Mm-hmm. Like at the same time that I was like looking at, all the dangerous things that could happen to Saeed from this encounter. I knew that this was his only, this might be like his only chance. How else was he supposed to learn anything? He was so excited to like be able to express him, himself in this way and is, you know, come to learn a little bit more about his sexuality. And um, that it's like, unfortunately, like this experience for him was rare and really informative and tragic and heartbreaking. And so I know so many queer people who have experiences exactly like this in the sense of almost predatory, an older person or someone who's like taking advantage of them. But it's also like their only chance they've had to like express and like embrace their sexuality. And it's, it comes from the information gaps, right? The information desert. Thanks for explaining what that feels like. I really honestly hadn't thought about it until reading this and then you and I talking about it and that like that's a big thing and a big problem living in a heteronormative culture where everyone just assumes that everyone's straight and you you know better than I do, but it seems to me 
that still, even though we've made a lot of progress where you can talk about it more openly than you could a while ago, it's still not to the point that that I would think that people feel just as comfortable, you know, again, with like those first kisses or those first dances or those, all that stuff. Like it's not there yet. It's at least it doesn't seem to be to me. I think it depends on a lot, right? It depends on your community, your culture, your family, you and your style. I think there are some people in some places that are experiencing, especially like Gen Z, right? They're experiencing um, not this pressure to have to define their sexuality. Mm-hmm. They can just like explore who they are without pressure. And that's not in my community. I mean, we don't, I don't experience that here in Utah. And I think we're a little like way behind. But I'm, I'm really, from what it seems like, it seems like it's happening in certain places, but we are very far from, right? Yeah. The ideal. Yeah, yeah. Well, and obviously, like, different areas of the country where there's literally, di- like, don't say gay laws. And, mm-hmm. like, people freak out when there's a gay character in a Pixar movie or something where it's like, that's exactly what a queer kid, exactly what they need to see is, like, see themselves represented so that they can feel more comfortable just being who they are and having, again, this this topic of like their safety, I had not thought about yet, that it just does make you really vulnerable to older predators if mm-hmm. that's the only, if that's your only option. Ah, uh, I did not know and that's, that. Isn't that terrifying? Yes. You like, I just like think about like school dances. It's like the idea is that we create an environment for kids to explore their sexuality in a way that is under like supervision, mm-hmm. right? Because if that wasn't the case, we'd just be like, go uh, anywhere, go hang out. And no, it's like, this is a very guided thing so we can make sure that mm-hmm. people are protected. And like queer kids, at least when I grew up, did not get any of that. We were encouraged to stick to the shadows. We were, if anything, pushed to stick to the shadows. After I came up to my parents and I came up to my parents when I was 30, right? I'm 34 now. So not long ago, and it feels like a long time, but um, my parents felt really bad about it. And they were like, wow, and I wish we would have known. And I asked my parents, I was like, why didn't, what would you have done if I would have come out to you as a teen? And from their answers, I was like, dad, you do understand how like that would have been horrible for me. My dad was like, oh, we, I would have tried to convince you to be straight. Maybe, mm. and had you have experiences with women to help you like, and I'm like, that would have been terrible my mom would have locked me away just doing the best she could what she thought but it would have been so bad so it's like we're left to the shadows thank you so much for talking about that stacy and that brings us to the end of the conversation and i just want to thank you again so much for reading the book discussing this book with me thank you so much for having me Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.